Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 14. We are finally there. We have finally reached the book of Ephesians. We're finally there. And I'm going to spend the whole morning talking to you about two words. In Christ. And I added in Christ Jesus because it's in the text. But the phrase in Christ appears in the Apostle Paul's writing 86 times. In Jesus, a few more times. In him, 40-something more times. Paul is obsessed with this idea of a relationship of being in Christ. So what does it mean? It's like his major theme. It's like the thing that he says, it's like if you get this, you've got the whole. Because it's like if you know who you are, then you can know how to be. If you know who you are, then you can know how to filter the the situation in the world, how to filter the information in the world, how to filter what's going on. And remember, it's written by a man who's in prison. Most of the times, listen, I think the only time Paul wrote was in when he was in prison. (laughs) It wasn't true, but he, he had time to reflect then. So he's in prison. His his movement doesn't look like it's winning. It looks like it's losing. This is the secret of Christianity. Losing is winning. This is the secret of Christianity. We don't have to survive. We don't have to be on top. We don't have to be first. This is the secret of our faith. That defeat is victory. And so when they take... Jesus' life, his breath from him, it's not the end, it's the beginning. And when they take Paul's head from him, it's not the end, it's the beginning. And so you and I are going from what? Victory to victory, because we ain't worried about defeat. Defeat doesn't defeat us. All right, that's that's the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Jesus, by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus. Hey, if you're in Ephesus, you know where you are, right? Where are you guys? What are you in? You're in Albuquerque. You should have gone with Bugs Bunny. (laughs) But you're in Albuquerque. And you know where you are. So if you can just get those, get the wheels working of what it means to be in Albuquerque. To be in the culture. To be in the cuisine. To be in the fellowship of the city. To be in the sunshine, for crying out loud, if you're where I'm from. (laughs) It's fantastic. So then you go and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he goes to writing in a letter and he doesn't write a letter anything like what we write letters. And he's gonna hammer home this theme because everything Paul's gonna build about how to be comes out of who we are. And he's gonna hammer it home for us for a couple of chapters. We're in the in crowd. In Christ is the in crowd. Listen, guys, if you're in a union, you know what that means. You know the benefits that accrue to you. If you're in a gang, you know what that means. In social classes, in tribes, political parties, fraternal orders, in a certain race, in a certain religion. These are identifiers that tell you. What do they tell you? They tell you all sorts of things. But uh, listen, I remember a time... I'll get in trouble for saying this, so I won't tell you all the fullness of it. But my father, there was a time when my father called me to his side and he said, son, if you ever get in trouble, you come tell me first. And then he literally said to me, because I have friends. 
In other words, he said, because I'm in a certain group and I can get you out of trouble. You understand that, don't you? Okay, so the Christian message of being in Christ is reflected in every one of those things. Hey, if you're in a union, you know you can, you can get away with stuff on your job that you couldn't get away with if you weren't in the union. I'm sorry, it's true. If you're in a gang, you know that you have a level of protection that you wouldn't have if you were not in that gang. I just came from India. You wanna talk about social class? And how it applies among, among the Indian people? Right now we're talking about political parties and please take note of something. Take note of, of, of how news is reported by the various partisan news reporting organizations. What you're in determines everything about how you're talked about. So are you getting this? Being in is just not the same as being out. And being out has consequences. Being in has benefits. If you're in the in crowd, you have rank, privilege, status, identity, protection, and access. All these things. It's what it means to be in. And with no hesitation, Paul comes and gives us an in identity for ourselves wherein we can, we can claim these things for ourselves. And what happens to people is you haven't accessed your benefits because you haven't fully accessed your identity. I, it took me a long time to realize. Listen, as soon as I met Jesus, the first flush of thing was, was how glorious it was to be in Jesus. And suddenly I was no longer ashamed and no longer overwhelmed by my sinfulness and no longer, you see, I had, I had, the first taste of being in, and I was like, it was like, it was like taste of honey on my lips. <laughs> it was like holy water. Hallelujah. Singing about holy water in a charismatic church. <laughs> and then much of the Christian life is spent apprehending the benefits of who you are. And I watch people all the time come to fresh revelation of their identity. And I see, I see their, their joy change, their hope change, their practices change. It's just fresh identity. It's more of what is already yours. And so what Paul's gonna do is he's gonna press it for us. So, are you, have you got it as a beginning? Have you got it? Do you get it? Because I want you to get it. Now, whether you know it or not, all these things are echoes of what covenant means. Covenant is the way you get in. All right? What we have today is people who try to take benefits without being in covenant. This is why the family is broken down. The family is broken down because the culture has blessed the idea of the benefits without the covenant. 
So family has, has become weak, 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 weak. Am I in despair over it? No, it's just a season. It's no different than taking our head from our shoulders. It can't, it can't sustain forever. So let's talk about it. Let's do it this way. You know I'm gonna do it this way. So what does it mean to be in Christ? Well, let's start with Abraham. And I'm starting with Abraham and I'm gonna go to David and then we're gonna go to Jesus. And we do this because in Matthew, if you remember, we started with a a covenant family and it taught us about Abraham, David, Jesus. So what did it mean to be in Abraham? There's this strange passage. I love this passage. I remember the first time I like got it. Now listen to me about what I'm gonna do. I'm gonna read this difficult and strange passage and I'm gonna make an application from the passage that's not exactly the application the passage is making, but it still pertains. What the the author is telling us is that Jesus has brought a priesthood that's greater than the priesthood of the Levites. The reason he's doing this is because, is, is because he's talking to Hebrew people who are in danger of going out instead of staying in. They're literally thinking about leaving the family. And he's saying to them, no, no, no. What we have in Jesus is superior to what we had under Moses. And one of the things he's telling us about is the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus. But how he gets at that superiority is astonishing. It's mind-blowing. Let's look at it. See how great a man uh, this man was to whom Abraham, uh, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. It's not in the text, but he's speaking of Melchizedek. Melchizedek has a short passage in Genesis a very tiny reference in the Psalms and then an explosive passage in Hebrews where it's, where, it's, uh, where, where it's taught to us. And those descendants of Levi, who is Levi? The head of the Levites, the Levitical priestly system. Those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is, from their brothers, uh, though these also are descendants from Abraham. So the Levites and all their other tribes are descendants of Abraham, but the Levites get the privilege of tithes. They didn't get a land inheritance, they get tithes. But this man, who does not have descent from them, receives tithes, okay? In other words, the Levites are not the reason Melchizedek gets tithes. Receives tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Okay, with me so far? It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. Fathers bless children. Parents bless offspring. Your your rank, and yes, ranks exist, determines the blessing. This is why uh, when I was in India, one of the rituals of the church 
Every week we, we preached a service and then literally the whole church lined up to walk past the pastors to have hands laid on them. The whole church, every service. Are you kidding me? Because they believed in the blessing. And they believed in the priestly function of the pastoral calling. It was fantastic. It was amazing. All right. You understand? You under, never mind. It's really hard to talk about this stuff in a politically correct culture. Because a politically correct culture acts like there's no rank while it establishes new ranks. All right. In the one case, the tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say, and this is where it gets very strange, that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. What? This text says, the inference I'm drawing, the writer says, is that as Abraham was paying tithes to Melchizedek, the Levites who received tithes, <laughs> are you kidding me? Were paying tithes to Melchizedek. Why? Explains it. For he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. Get, now get hold of this. Here's how covenant works in the Bible. When a family leader makes a covenant, that covenant blessing flows down to all the participants of the covenant. In this case, when the family leader acknowledged a superior by paying tithes, then you paid tithes. When a family leader makes a covenant, you're in the covenant. This is why... <laughs> this, is, this is why we see tithes, or we see covenants generations after they're made being honored by, by subsequent generations who didn't make the covenant. So in this case, he's saying, he's saying the Levites paid tithes to, to Melchizedek, meaning literally that the order of Levitical priesthood was not superior to the order of the priesthood of Melchizedek. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is in that order. He's a superior high priest. All right, so what did it mean? What did it mean to be in Abraham? It meant what was true of Abraham is true of you. It also meant, don't forget this. Abraham paid tithes. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And what does blessing do? Bring increase. All right. I'm working at this because I know, that, look, can I tell you about, I'm, I'm teaching theology online now. And my, and my theology students are, are like, You know, we love Jesus. We're not sure about this. <laughs> and, and whenever they do that, you know what I just say? I just say, well, tell me that you understand the book of Hebrews completely, the book of Romans completely, and the book of Revelation completely. And you can't. 
because it's really deep waters. You're going into deep waters. And theology is going into deep waters. And I'm taking you into deep waters because I want you to so get this thing of being in Christ that you won't be shaken tomorrow when the world shakes. And it's gonna shake. Oh, it's gonna shake. It's gonna shake some more. It is gonna shake some more. Hallelujah. I'm all right with it. In Abraham. All right, got it? One person humored me. Thank you. We can go on. Because in that one person, all of you affirmed me. <laughs> I, I hear John here. John's the one, if you want to go to New Orleans, see John afterwards. Doesn't he look like New Orleans? New Orleans will work for him. I don't look like New Orleans so much anymore, but I'm going anyway. Um, if you've never been to Mardi Gras, you need to go. You'll want to go because your pastor is going to come home talking about fasting. So get, get ready. Get ready. This is the warm-up because when I, when I come next week and then the week following, I'm going to be talking about fasting and I'm going to be telling you to get rid of something for Jesus' sake and for your sake. All right, let's keep going. Melchizedek, the explanation. He's superior to Abraham. Receives tithes from Abraham. Gives blessings to Abraham. Melchizedek is superior to the Levitical priesthood. He's not their descendant. And oh, by the way, I will tell you, I actually believe that the Levites were descended from Melchizedek, but that's a sermon for another, for another day. And I mean biologically. And then secondly, Melchizedek receives tithes from the Levites because they're in Abraham. Now, what immediately is about to happen is going to be rich for you, but we're not there yet. We've got to take one more turn in our story. In David, I touched this last week as I was finishing, but it bears demonstrating. All right. You're very clear, right? David is the descendant of Abraham. David is the royal king from the tribe of Judah that was prophesied for Israel. He's the manifestation of it in the flesh. David is the man who was a man after God's own heart. And people always say, well, David was a man after God's own heart, and he did, and they start reciting his sins. Just understand this. He had, David was a man after God's heart before he fell into sin. He was still that guy when he fell into sin, but he forgot who he was temporarily. And guess what? He didn't lose who he was because of the stupid things he did. I told them last night, I'll tell you today. I'm, I'm without hesitation sure that some of us, most of us, eventually all of us is going to go out of here and do something stupid. <laughs> and then every one of us, when we do it, we're going to feel like, we're going to feel like our identity is gone. It's not. This is why teenagers, when they break the family covenant and act in ways the family doesn't act, they feel like they're alienated from the family and they align their hearts with the crowd in the streets rather than with the family because they've temporarily become stupid and lost their identity. Let me give you some good news, parents. You keep the lifeline going, the light on, and you keep the joy in your heart because they are coming back to you. You have invested in them. You have tethered them to yourselves, and they're not going far away. All right. I read this, or I referenced this last week. Here's the deal. 
in David. In, so inside of Abraham was the Levitical priesthood. Inside of David is the whole nation of Israel. Why? In this case, representatively. He stood and shouted, this is speaking not of David, but of Goliath, to the ranks of Israel. Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose for yourselves uh, a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you will be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all his army heard these words of the Philistines, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So Goliath, this literal human giant, walks out. And this is, by the way, the Valley of Elah. He walks out and he gives the challenge to the people of God. And he says... All the nation of the Philistines is fighting in me today. I'm their champion. Send me your champion. And whatever happens to the two of us happens to all of you. And so the Philistines were in Samson that day representatively. And the children of Israel are going to be in the champion of Israel. This is a fantastic chapter, and it's so good for what we want to teach today because there's some wonderful things true about it. First, we have to find a champion for Israel, and that champion is David. I've skipped a lot of the verses. This is in 1 Samuel 17. If you go back one chapter in 1 Samuel, you get your real introduction to David, and you meet this man who is a shepherd, who is the beloved of his father. We know that because his name means that. We meet this man who has taken care of his father's concerns, fought the lion, fought the bear, prevailed, looked after his assignment anonymously. 100%, folks, the way to succeed in this world is to not despise the day of anonymity and to take care of those things that are assigned to you when you think nobody cares or nobody's watching and when nobody says thank you. What you do in the isolation prepares you for anything you might ever do in the open. What you do in the secret place prepares you for the public debate. What you do in the place of forsakenness, that emotional place of forsakenness, is what prepares you for the place of begottenness. Mine. This is David. And so David comes out. But, but first of all, I, a little more. The prophet goes and finds David, pours the horn of oil on him, and it says to us that the Spirit rushed upon him. I have told you before, the Spirit is in you, for you. He comes upon you, for others. 
The spirit comes upon David and now David is filled with a sense of identity that he never had before. A sense of identity that, that was growing in that place of hiddenness, that place of the shadows, growing inside of him, but comes to full manifestation in the presence of Goliath the giant. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Remember David had eschewed, he had, he had eschewed the armor of his, of, of his king Saul, who by the way, was the only person of comparable statue to Goliath. He wasn't, he wasn't, the, he wasn't as great a stature as, as Goliath, but he was among the Israelites of the greatest stature. And he does not champion his people, though he is the king. And David petitions him and David goes and champions the people. And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the, of the field. Now I like what comes next. Because this is meek and mild David. Are you ready? <laughs> You come to me with a sword and a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day, the Lord will deliver you into my hand. I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know there's a God in Israel. And all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle belongs to, uh, the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. Please get hold of this. Please get hold of this in election year. <laughs> Please get hold of this in election year. The battle belongs to the Lord and you and I are not partisans, we're Christians. No matter, listen, no matter who wins, we win. I'm going to win no matter who wins. I've, been, I've lived long enough to see that you can dance on the left and dance on the right, and I'm still who I am. I'm going to tweak you about the political stuff because I always do during the political year, so get ready. It's going to be all right. David would have had a serious Twitter feed, wouldn't he? All right. It's appropriate that in our passage in Ephesians, we come to the blessing. Because what did I tell you? What did the Bible tell you? I didn't tell you this. <laughs> it's Melchizedek, the superior, who blesses Abraham. Abraham brings tithes to honor and to, and to honor his, his position and greatness and authority, and Abraham receives blessing. So as soon as the apostle Paul starts telling us, or starts telling the people he's writing to who they are, he immediately tells them about the blessing. And listen guys, this is the only four usages of the word blessing in the letter to the Ephesians. Because the blessing of who they are comes first. And everything flows out of the blessing. 
You got to know you're blessed. You got to know you're blessed. This is an issue of identity. This is an issue of being I am. Is to know how my wife is doing a gratefulness journal and she's on a mission to get other people doing gratefulness journals because that's the that's that's the acknowledgement of the blessing. Thanksgiving is what we bring when we're blessed. Thanksgiving is uh, what those who have nothing can give always because they are in the blessing. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Hallelujah. That we should be holy and blameless. I want you to notice something though. I want you to notice the language here. Paul's language about being chosen is us, not I. And most of the language of the Bible about election is corporate, not personal. This is a really important way of understanding election. Your election is in Christ. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, in which he has blessed us in the beloved. Look at this. I just, you know, I just highlight these things. By the way, it's interesting. I've highlighted most of the things that most people don't highlight in this passage. You know what we do? We read a passage like this. And we march off into speculative theology about election and predestination. And we leave the blessing on the ground. Stop the nonsense. Every once in a while, somebody will learn something about the doctor of election and they'll come to me and say, how do I know if I'm elect? And as soon as, I know, as, soon as that conversation begins, I kind of go, yeah, I'm going home. How can I know if I'm elect? Uh, I'm a, I, I'm <laughs> That's like saying, I belong to Jesus, but I don't know it. That's a confession of a lack of identity. That's moving the thing out of a relationship of, of experience and life and trust and hope and moving it into uh, speculations about things that you can never know. And yeah, that'll lead you to insecurity. That's like getting married and waking up the next day and saying, how can I know we're married? You go, that's absurd. And that's what I'm telling you, it's absurd. It's an absurd question. But people do ask absurd questions because our mind has an infinite capacity for nonsense. <laughs> it's relational. Look at this. Every spiritual blessing. So it starts off, he, said, he says he's given us every spiritual blessing. And then he enumerates them. What are they? 
We, we have election regardless of any other status of disqualification. Let me tell you what that meant to them. He's talking to a mixed group of people. It's the first time in history that this particular mixed group of people have ever been one people. They were Jews and they were Gentiles who were in Christ. And he's speaking to them. And he's, when he uses the word election, he's saying to the Gentiles, what's true of them is true of you. You are God's chosen people. It has a history. It doesn't have an abstraction. The spiritual blessing is you're in the family. Holy and blameless, regardless of their failures. You guys are all here because you're good enough to be here, right? I'm standing up here because I'm, I'm good enough to do this, right? Nonsense. Going to church is not a proclamation of our goodness. It's a proclamation of our need. It's a proclamation of our identity. It's a proclamation of what we have received, not what we have achieved. Every spiritual blessing adopted as sons. And I love this. I'm going to keep saying this. I'm going to keep using the language exactly of the Bible because an offended world needs to understand that, that adoption as sons was, is, and has always been and always will be a descriptor of all the people of God, sons and daughters. Not a new place to get offended and divide people. The language of the Bible, the, the patriarchal language of the Bible was always an inclusion and never an exclusion. And you miss the point if you don't, if you don't get hold of that. And Paul uh, accentuates the point when he comes to Galatians and says, since we've become in Christ, you need to know it's all in all, male and female in Christ, one in Christ. We're adopted as sons. Now this business of adoption, uh, here's what's interesting. I thought, I think I'll just ask people uh, who's here that's adopted. And then I realized, wait, adoption fills a lot of people with rejection. So today is the day that I tell you that adopted children have exactly the same status as natural offspring. In the same way that the adopted Gentile peoples have exactly the same status as the original uh, Hebrew people, the original people in Abraham. It's the same. Listen, it, Jesus knows us at every point so that strangely enough, Jesus came into this world and he was, he was not his natural father's son. And his natural father actually had to, by faith, receive him. And so that Jesus too in the flesh was adopted. And listen, this was the thing that people did. Never mind, that's too long a trail to go down. Adoption gives you the same status as natural generation. By adoption, I've had three last names and I've never lost who I am. I've always been who I always was, who I always am until Jesus came along and made me who I truly am. Adoption. In, in India, Indians gladly take adoptive names. You'll ask them their name, they'll tell you. You ask them their Christian name, they'll tell you. Because when they got adopted into the family, into the covenant, into Jesus, they took a Christian name. 
because they wanted their identity to be with Christ. Listen, if you're adopted, it's a blessing. Adoption in the Bible is full blessing, full rights, full inheritance, full identity. It's fullness. It's lacking nothing. It's having nothing deprived from you. And graced by the beloved one. The only one that can grace you is the one who is already loved. The one who is loved, this is what it says about him. It says, to the praise of this glorious grace with which that glorious grace, he has blessed us in the beloved. So let's look at the blessings again. Election, blamelessness, adoption, grace. This is who you are in Christ. I'm like knocking on the door because I know inside this house are sons and daughters who haven't yet apprehended that for which they've been apprehended, haven't yet gotten hold of who they are. Because if you get hold of who you are, your fears change, your insecurities change, your anger change, your anguish changes. If you get hold of who you are, things change. He's my glory and the lifter of my head. This is Jesus. This is Jesus, our wonderful Savior. In him, we have redemption through his blood. He's still speaking of the spiritual blessings, a new meaning in life. Redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom, insight, making known to us the mystery of his will. Listen, the mystery of his will is not what you're gonna be when you grow up. The mystery of his will is who we are in him and what he's done and therefore we're in on it. So sometimes people come there and say, well, what's the will of God for me? And I always start, you know where I always start when I, when I say, when people say to me, what's the will of God for me? I always start with, well, what do you wanna do? And they look at me like I've blasphemed. Let me tell you something. If God has a special assignment for you, he knows your name and knows your address and knows how to tell you. And if he doesn't, you get to do pretty much whatever you want. Stop being a slave and be free. Stop walking in fear and walk in joy. I always start with, well, what do you want? If you want a bunch of ungodly things, then yeah, I'll probably adjust you. <laughs> but... But it's okay, to, it's okay to be born and go, man, I'd like to do that. And then you go, but I don't know if it's the will of God. <laughs> well, is there anything about doing that that would make you ungodly? Then you're, you have a place to start. And then any person who has said, Lord, I belong to you. I'll do whatever you want me to do. He knows how to tell you what he wants. Stop stressing out. When I sit down to a feast, like I did in India, I didn't, I'm going to be honest with you. I didn't say, Lord, what do you want me to eat? I said, give me some more. Of that. I'm like, man, that's good. What was it? Answer was always the same, curry. Y'all know it took me forever to realize that curry was a name for sauce. I thought it was like something special. Like, like, well, how do you know it's the curry? I was looking for the will of God. I didn't know. <laughs> These things just come to me. I'm sorry. I don't know. 
Now listen, lavished on us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Listen, Paul, in the will of God, began to go here and there and here and there. Once in a while, God would stop him. Once in a while, he'd be stopped and he'd say, the devil stopped me. And I'm always kind of curious about that. Really? I'm a little curious about that. I don't stress out about it. But you know what? When Paul was in prison writing this letter, he was as much Paul in the will of God as he was when he was in the, in the, in the afternoon meetings at Siesta Seminary. In all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, listen, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him. Things in heaven, things on earth. Okay, this is the day I, I'm, I plant this seed and this is the hardest thing for us to get. You and I live in a split universe and we think of heaven and earth this way. And, we, and heaven is a destination, a one-day destination, and earth is a habitation for just now. And we don't see the union of heaven and earth. We see disjunction. And what Paul says is that the whole plan that was set forth in Christ in the fullness of time was to unite things in him, things in heaven, and things are in, on earth. And this is why the Bible says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. The union of heaven and earth is the consummation of all things, not the, not the split. And this is why you and I have been duped into living in a world where we have quietly accepted things like the separation of church and state because we've said, after all, heaven and earth are separate. No, they're not. They're one. And for anyone and in Christ, the two are supposed to be one. And you and I are involved in a project of making, making earth like heaven. And it's not just true in broken bodies. It's true in broken systems. It's true in broken cultures. It's true in broken people. To bring the glory of heaven into earth, even if we're sitting in a jail writing letters to people that we're wanting to encourage. This is the gospel. And yes, it does make us squint our eyes. It makes us give pause. It makes us say, I don't get it all. No, you don't, but you're involved in that vocation. Your vocation that has been set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time is to unite in Christ all things in heaven and all things on earth. This is why Jesus is the new temple. He is the place where heaven and earth meet. He is the one in whom heaven and earth meet. He is the one you could destroy and he'll build it back again in three days and he becomes the habitation of the beloved. And this is the gospel. I'm getting tired. I have to quit soon. We're forgiven lavishly. We're participants in his glorious will and we are included in his plan to unite heaven and earth. We are forgiven lavishly. 
If you're in the sound of my voice, in the name of Jesus, your sins are forgiven. If you're in the sound of my voice, you are participants in his will. Stop trying to find it and just be children. Be sons and daughters of God. The will will find you. He will find you. His voice will find you. His directions will find you. He will speak to you. Hallelujah. And we're included in his plan to unite, not to divide. In his plan to bring together, to restore. Eden was heaven on earth. The temple was heaven on earth. Jesus was the embodiment of heaven on earth. The resurrection was the manifestation of heaven on earth in Jesus. And you and I are participants in that reality. This is the gospel. And you say, it's hard to understand. And I say, I don't care. Breathe it, breathe it, receive it, get it. Turn your lights off, turn the noise off, sit quietly and let this God of heaven minister to you and tell you who you are and put assignments in your heart that nobody can take away. We're almost done. Last passage. In him, we have obtained an inheritance. What? I had somebody talk to me this week and said, oh, I've got a good inheritance coming. If you're in Jesus, you've got one already come. <laughs> having obtained an inheritance, having predestined us according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be the, to the praise of his glory, in him you also so Paul is, a, see, he's, Paul is describing the glorious benefits that have accrued to him. And then he says, in him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, when you heard the gospel of your salvation and you believed in him, when you believed, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. In the Old Testament, when, when, the God, when God talked about inheritance, he talked about a land inheritance. Even though if you read the Old Testament clearly enough, you would know that God himself was their inheritance. Even as God himself was the, Levi, the Levites' inheritance. And by putting the Levites inside of all the tribes, God put a down payment of their inheritance in the midst of them so that the blessing would be present until it is fully come. And then in Jesus, he comes and he gives us the down payment of our inheritance. When people think about a seal, here's how you think about a seal. You think about a letter and it's sealed and closed. The inheritance in God is not closing something, it's opening the world to us. The inheritance of God, of God is, is the giving to you of a lavish, abundant amount of what's already yours so that you can live in the fullness of it here and now. You were not made to live in fear, but in faith. You were not made to live in violence, but in love. You were not made to live in alienation, but in harmony and peace. You were not made to live as people who are outsiders, but fully insiders. You were made for these things. And God says, here, I'm gonna seal it for you. I'm gonna, 
steal you. It is as if the it is as if it is as if the uh, this is so paltry of an illustration, but it's as if you're the child of a billionaire and he comes in with bags of gold and says, one day it'll all be yours, but until then, this ought to be enough. <laughs> and what the Lord does is what he has given. The seal of, of all these things is he gives himself to us by his Holy Spirit. And so these kids sing to us about it this morning. You heard it, if you, if you were hearing and, and participating, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. The seal means that you have a down payment that assures you that the rest is coming. It's like when you go to buy a house and they say, you gotta put down a deposit to seal the deal. He seals this deal. And so... What do, we, what do we exist for as a church? To rejoice in what we have received. Why don't you stand together?